So South Central was the name that we all grew up knowing. It was the name that reflected um, where we lived at, how we behaved, what we believed, uh, a lot of our music from South Central or a lot of music that paid homage to South Central really gave us a sense of pride about where we lived at. You know, it would say, oh, well, where are you from? I'm from South Central Los Angeles, not just Los Angeles, but South Central Los Angeles in particular. And I left and I, and I lived in a couple other cities and I came back and it was South Los Angeles. And it took me some time to unlearn South Central and to speak with fluidity around South Los Angeles this more um, inclusive, all-encompassing identity of folks who might be transplants or new to the area or folks who may be returning to the area and maybe had deep roots but grew up somewhere else but came back because they had family members who lived there. And at first I felt like I was losing something. I couldn't name what I was losing. Uh, I felt like I might have been losing a little bit of street cred. I felt like I might have been losing a little bit of the identity that I had come to associate with home. And also, I, I felt like South LA or South Central was different. It wasn't the same any longer. Some of the businesses, some of the same places that we would frequent were no longer there. Some of the families had moved out and the demographics had shifted so dramatically since the time I left. And by the time I came back, it was just a different place. And so I think in a lot of ways, I'm relearning and, and learning newly what South LA actually is. That's crazy that you said that. Corey, because right now there's also this reclaiming happening that, you know, the, the name South Central for so many years, it, there's a pride that comes with it, a resiliency, an automatic, like, you know, a camaraderie that comes with that name. But as we, over the years, as they've been rebranding of South LA and it comes coming in like politically, and some of this came in from neighborhoods, but in more recent years, there's this real reclaiming of South Central and what that means. Pierrette, can you talk about that a bit, a bit about how that was described in the book? Yes, absolutely. South Central has an important, as one person told me, it's a has a special term of endearment for me, she said. She kind of pushed back against South LA. That said, other people felt South LA was more all-encompassing. They felt like they had not quite been included before. And here, our respondents, our interviewees, and Watts in particular, were very firm. This is not South Central. This is Watts. And there's a particular love and pride for the, the uniqueness of that place. So going forth in this conversation, we'll be using South LA and South Central interchangeably. And we hope that you know you guys realize we're saying this out of place respect. I know as a reporter who's been out in the field for like a decade, um, sometimes that can be a barrier, how you identify a place. But we all have a deep love and appreciation for this space. Um, my other question is like, so often when I'm out in the field, people almost test me. They want to know my street cred, my relationship to this place. I want to ask you guys, can you talk about your relationship with this region, with this land, with this space, with the people of South LA? Great, well thank you. I'm so glad that Mike is working. Some of you know me know that I have a voice condition that prevents my voice from being able to project. Uh, it gets treated once a month with Botox, which is why I look so damn good. Uh, but. Uh, it creates problems when you don't have a mic. I, I want to say a preface to that, uh, which is it's also important, because I'm the statistician of the group, to remember that in 1970, South Central was 80% African American, and 50% of all black people in the county lived in 
what is now borders of South LA. South LA is now two-thirds Latino, and only one quarter of the county's black population lives in South LA. People have dispersed and gone out. And so that's a very important part of the story, including a sense of loss on the part of the black population of this central uh, place of meaning for the community, not just for the people who live there, but for all of black Los Angeles in terms of the overall county. Now, I my relationship with South LA, I started working with groups in South LA in the late 1980s. I was only 14 years old at the time. Uh, but I started working with the South Central Organizing Committee and with concerned citizens of South uh, Central. Uh, one, doing work on raising the minimum wage. One, doing work on environmental justice issues. Did a lot of work with Mark Ridley Thomas and the Empowerment Congress way back in the early 1990s and have been aligned with COCO since that period of time as well. So I've never lived in South LA, but I've had a series of political commitments to the communities of South LA uh, since then. Uh, Corey can testify as to whether or not I got any credit or not. But at least I got some history. Great. Well, I'm going to come back to this site that we're sitting at right now. Um, this, I wish you could see what I'm looking at because I'm seeing your beautiful faces and I'm seeing these beautiful trees, right? So Mercado La Paloma has been you know, I've been working at USC for 30 years. This has become another little home away from home and a gathering space, right, that brings together residents, people who are working here, students, generations of students who've never felt at home at USC have felt at home in this building. Um, so that too is part of my relationship and part of the promise of uh, this place? Well, I um, had the pleasure, I guess, it wasn't my decision, but I was born and raised in South Los Angeles, South Central at the time. I'm, I'm from the Westmont community, um, 108th and Western. People from South Central, we know that you have to say your streets, so that's my streets. Um, but I will say that the thing that comes to mind when I think about my experience was that I, I, I didn't necessarily feel like I knew so much about the greater city of Los Angeles. I just knew my experience in South Central. I knew block parties and the MLK parade and mini bikes driving through the streets and the tamale man coming and the corn man coming. I, I knew those things and I felt like maybe that was generalizable to, to everybody in Los Angeles, but it wasn't until I went to college were folks from across the county and they were like we didn't do those types of things for example going to prom we would have something called a champagne party which is basically like a send-off it was like a, a little mini wedding basically and it wasn't it's not common culture and so there were certain things that i didn't rec recognize as unique to south central and to our identity until i met people from other places and realized that they had not done that so i would say that it's very special and it's and it's extremely creative and, and very unique
Yeah, that's crazy that you bring up the champagne party because it becomes like a neighborhood event. It's a block party in a sense. Like we're we're sending someone off who who has this great accomplishment of high school and you know sending them off in, in style. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the book here. So we talked about South LA how it for so many years it was you know it, it has been a place where there's so been so many dreams, the epicenter of the California dreams for so many. And it first started out like the land of the Tomva, and then it became now black people moved here from um, from the south in the great migration to start their dreams. And now we're seeing this shift again. Tell me a little bit about how you've documented the changes of South LA in your book, Manuel. Um, of course I'm excited to talk about my book. Um, it's, it's an excellent book. It's going to be made into a major motion picture. I will be portrayed by Antonio Banderas, so I'm really excited about that. Uh, so I think it's important to realize South LA was actually a white working class community as well. And it was, uh, you know, South Central going down the sort of historic South Central corridor was a black community, but a lot of both the west part of South LA and the eastern reaches of South LA into even places like Watts had a significant white working class community. Uh, and that a lot of that community moved out after the 19, both because of fair housing laws that made it possible for black people to buy in, and then a big white flight after the uh, 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 1965 Watts Rebellion. Uh, it became important, sacred black space, not just the historic Central Avenue corridor, but all of South Central and what it meant, even to people living in the unincorporated territories like West uh, so there you go. Uh, but what happened was that there was a big influx of Latinos in, there was always Latinos in South LA, but there was a big influx in the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, but particularly in the 80s. And part of that was that with the Mexican debt crisis and with the Central American wars, there was a huge influx of immigrants into uh, Pico Union, Vermont Corridor, and basically the place got overfilled, and people started looking south to uh, South LA. And that was just at the time that deindustrialization, the loss of jobs, the 1992 civil unrest, the over-policing of young black men led to a lot of black movement out of South LA. So there was a bit of a black exodus, and there was a huge Latino in migration, and what prompted us to do the book, I'm now doing the academic thing of answering the question you did not ask, but I wish you had. Uh, what prompted us to do the book is that during that early period of transformation, there were lots of tensions, and reporters and academics fled in to document when people did not get along when there were fights in schools, when there was political discord, when there was economic competition. But very few people came back 20 years later to ask what had been the transformations? How had community groups built bridges between the communities? What were the daily accommodations at a sort of neighborhood level that had gone on? And what we wanted to do was to tell that story that had not been told about how after there was these big demographic transformations, 
How do people find home and build community together? Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. I mean, the community members did want this story updated, remedied. And uh, like Manuel, I hope you will read our book. We're proud of it. A lot of people worked on it. Um, and what we're, we're doing in part, Angel, was you know, looking at this change over time, but there's a lot of different moving parts in the book, different sources of data, and part of what we're looking at also was um, changes across generation. So one part of our uh, data is 100 interviews with Latino residents, about half of whom were the first generation working class Mexican, Central American immigrant families who moved here from East LA or Pico Union, looking for affordable housing, better options. Um, and then we interviewed their now young adult children, right? Second generation Latinos who have a very different uh, social and racial formation from uh, their parents. So, you know, the parents came here, that first uh, immigrant generation came here during this time of divestment, deindustrialization, poverty, there's gang wars, there's police Some of them were victims of this crime. Um, and some of them formed this idea like, wow, one person stole my gold, you know, a black person stole my gold chain that they were kind of left with that image of African Americans, uh, solidified a lot by their own kind of bubble, right? Monolingual uh, Spanish speakers, um, learning, you know, coming with their own color lines from countries of origin and here. Their kids' experience is totally different. Their kids were often born here, they're raised here, um, they had black friends, they had black teachers, mentors, and sometimes there were fights, and sometimes there were friendships, but all of these melded together just like they do in any family. So one of the big, uh, you know, f uh, takeaways from our book is this change over time and the change across generations as well. I love that you guys, you know, brought the academic to what people were living like day to day and talked about different generations and how this identity and these this family was forged over time. I want to talk to Corey a little bit. Can you tell me what it was like actually in that being in those classrooms, being in that cafeteria, being out on the streets? How did you this play out in your neighborhood as, you know, black communities were slowly changing and how, you know, your friends were also, you know, Latino people who were part of this community as well? You know, um, I'm very introspective about that experience now because everything seems very different. So I try not to romanticize what it was like growing up. I had a great childhood. We had a lot of fun, lots of parties. I, I probably have been to, when I was in the 10th grade, I might have went to like seven or eight quinceañeras, just as an example. Um, we had a lot of fun. Um, we were... You know, we had dirt bikes and 
go-karts and mini bikes and there were tons of parties as i mentioned before block parties um one of the things that i do remember was there was a time period where there were sort of these race wars that happened in high schools and there were lockdowns that happened but it didn't feel like that was the ongoing trend it felt like those were very outlier type of situations they didn't happen all the time and i'm not even sure at that time i'm a kid i don't necessarily know what 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 prompted it or what the catalyst was but i do remember some elements of that happening but i also remember a lot of interracial dating i remember a lot of folks who were um of both cultures both groups i remember learning about uh central american culture just as an example uh when i had a lot of friends who would look like me but they would have you know latino surnames and I was like, how? Like, how does it work? Like, I'm Belizean. Like, what is Belizean? Like, what is that? You know, I, I, I had no idea what it was. And I think that um, there was a lot of, of groundwork being laid to what we see now happening at that time. And it was happening very slowly because where I grew up, I was, it was still a predominantly black community. I think Westmont is still probably the, the blackest part of South Central, next to maybe Lemert Park. Um, Hyatt Park, Lamar Park, yeah. So I think uh, it was it was black folks all around, um, but we had a couple of Latino families who had moved into the neighborhood, and they just blended right in. They had dirt bikes, mini bikes too. My dad would fix everybody's mini bike or bike or whatever, um, or, or motor scooter. I keep mentioning this. Look, there's a dirt bike there. People like dirt bikes in South Los Angeles, so I just have to say that. Uh, and I and it warms my heart when I see kids still like play with it because it's so much fun. But I will say that, um, you know, blend it right in. It wasn't necessarily a segregated type of thing because we all went to the same schools. We all had the same type of experiences. We were all in, and I was bus to school across town. So if you were black and brown, you were in like the non-AP honors classes kind of together, weathering the thing. And, and you know, and, and some of our folks, friends who spoke Spanish, they would teach us some of the curse words in Spanish. And, you know, they'll speak to us in Spanish. You know, so it was... It was a fusion, it was a melding that was happening, but you couldn't name it. I didn't have the language to name what was happening uh, at the time, but it certainly felt far more um, unified than distinctive, if that makes sense. It's really cool to hear and feel like, just resonates with our interviews so much. Thank you. Yeah, it's just so amazing to hear how your experiences like align with what they, done their research on but then also to see how all of that plays into the south la we have today that is so harmonious and cohesive 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 now um, i want to talk a little bit more about the research of this perhaps you mentioned that you guys interviewed like a hundred families latino families but you also interviewed dozens of black families as well talk a little bit about the research process and what were some of the surprising things you've discovered during that research Can you hear me now? Yes, even I can hear myself. Uh, so this was uh, what we call a mixed methods study. Um, and uh, my team, uh, which included uh, very talented people, some of whom are here tonight, Adrian Trinidad over there, Jose Miguel uh, Ruiz, um, not sure who else is, is here. 
we were, uh, we went out and we interviewed initially, kind of heart of it was 100 Latino residents and we knew we wanted to get this generational experience. So we did, um, you know, the, the 100 included uh, 41st generation, 62nd uh, generation uh, folks. And, um, and, you know, then as the project went on, as Manuel knows, we knew, I mean, initially, there, there's another book by Darnell Hunt and Christina Ramon called uh, Black Los Angeles. And we kind of felt like, well, we, you know, what's the, the, the Latino, the Latinx story of South LA? But, you know, it just took us like 24 hours to realize you cannot understand the Latino story of South Central and South LA without the black story and experiences. So our project grew. It included, um, I think, 25 um, African-American uh, residents. We also interviewed, Manuel is more in charge of this, 19 civic leaders, 20, it went up, uh, 26. And then I have this um, unusual attachment to green spaces. And I did another set with some of uh, our, our um, interviewers, another set of interviews and hanging out at um, MLK Park, um, Fred Roberts Park, Greater Watts Community Garden, and Stanford Avalon Community Garden, really to get a sense of kind of like public space, public experiences in these green spaces, which as many people here probably know are um, in short supply uh, here. Um, and uh, before I hand it off to Manuel, I guess the last thing I wanna say is uh, we had so many other dreams, like what is, you know, what were our South Central dreams also included, well, we're going to do a study of real estate and, you know, we're going to do a study of the commercial corridor on Central Avenue. At the end of the day, you know, you do what uh, you can do. So the invitation is for others, I think, to pick up that. So I'm going to lift up uh, three things that were sort of surprising about the research. Uh, one is that, uh, thanks to Brett for lifting up the method stuff, I'm going to just focus on three sort of surprising results. Uh, one is how important place is to identity. People often talk about race. But Latinos in South LA are different than Latinos in the rest of Los Angeles. They like hip hop more than they like ranchera. They cannot figure out why Latinos in East LA like Morrissey. What is that about? Um, when you ask them who their heroes are, uh, they will often identify black heroes. When they went to those schools, uh, they learned uh, the history of civil rights through the civil rights movement, uh, through the struggle against American apartheid and Jim Crow. They didn't learn as much about the Chicano blowouts. So they're steeped in this history and they're very easily able to center the struggle against anti-black racism, even as they're lifting up the need for Latino empowerment. So I think that there's an amazing thing with these, uh, the second generation. I could talk about the young black folks as well, who I think are able to do that as well, incorporate Latino issues to what they're doing. The second thing I think that's really important to lift up as something that was a bit surprising. When we look at daily life and people getting along, we often want to ascribe it to something that happened neighbor to neighbor. 
and I think that's important. But I think the neighbors getting along in South LA is a function of the work that Agenda and Scope and Coco and CD Tech and Cadre and every other community organizing group in South LA has done. We often think that people make movements, but movements also make people. When you bring people, I mean, there's a joke around LA that when a young person speaks up in a very black-brown framework, you go, well, they must be a cocoa youth, right? They actually came up through this community organizing. So the overlay of community organizing and how important it is, very important. Third thing that was a little bit surprising about uh, this research process was the following. Uh, when we were done with the first round of research, uh, there was a young guy who was so taken by the research that he decided to write a rap song and uh, get it recorded. And this may be the only research project, academic research project, that has its own rap video, which is on our website for the book, South Central Dreams. And I want to read to you, because we made the rap song the epigraph for the book, just the last four lines. Latino children speaking jazz, singing the blues, spitting these raps, overcoming the trap so that we can give back. Who's to tell this ghetto child how she or he identifies? These intersections, though, are mine. This neighborhood taught me to thrive. So that is lovely and frustrating at the same time because this rapper, Vin Villa, captured in two minutes what it took us four years to write, so. Thank you. Um, and how does this play out in, as you mentioned, coalition building, as we have these generation of, of a new generation of young black youth and now a new generation of young Latinos, how do we forge this partnership and how does that play out in its political landscape as we fight for basic rights for South LA? I wanna first let Corey address, address this. I was going to say, let's move the mic to the work that's making it happen. You know, I, I'm really fascinated by this generation. I think that this generation has transcended race politics, which was very prevalent when I was coming up. And they're more around humanity politics. This is the generation of, of identity respect, um, generation of inclusivity, the generation of ensuring that everyone has a place, everyone has voice, everyone matters um, and I and I really appreciate the freshness of that they're artsy and they are resilient and they believe in wellness and people feeling whole and calling out systems that don't allow for people to feel whole and leveraging cancel culture to 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 check folks and to make people accountable so it's it's just really fascinating to see the new ways in which they uh, express their identities because when, when I was growing up, it was a little bit different. You, you knew who you were, um, uh, and it was more fixed. And it also, in some ways, was more captured by groupthink around who we all were. So one of the things that I see less of now, but was very prevalent when I was coming of age, is color checking. You couldn't wear red in certain neighborhoods and blue in other neighborhoods. 
uh, you very rarely traveled across the 28 different neighborhoods unless you had a family member who was there. Um, so all of my family that was, you know, a lot of my family came from the South and moved here, the great, you know, migration story that a lot of black folks here share. And they all lived around each other um, in the same neighborhood. And if they were in gangs, they joined the same gangs. I don't see too much of that happening now. What I do see happening now is more coalescing between uh, youth of color around issues that matter to them. So if it's parks and green space, if it's art, if it is social, emotional, and wellness-centered type of spaces, if it is something around uh, entrepreneurship, which is another big thing that a lot of people care a ton about, uh, I'm seeing a lot of folks reach across one another to do that. One of the things, that, and I'll stop here, that was very, very fascinating to me was that at Community Coalition, our young people, they're a part of a program um, called South Central Youth Empowered Through Action, a leadership development entity. And it has been around for 30 years. Coco's been around for 31 years. Say Yeah, uh, which is South Central Youth Empowered Through Action, um, for short of Say Yeah, has been around for 30 of those years. And when there was this emergence of hate crimes against our Asian American communities, they actually held a teach-in with the young people. We have no Asian American students in the base of uh, Say Yeah or in the program at all, but they felt it important to elevate those concerns and draw um, you know, similarities between their experiences and, and th th their comrades that were of a different background. And I just feel like that was something that we were not doing, at least not explicitly, and certainly not with language at the time. So I just want to just lift that up. I want to piggyback just a little bit on what was said here and suggest like the young people, the second generation we interviewed are really this, you know, South LA's biggest asset, right? Uh, love of place formed by these communities, formed by daily experiences, interactions at the quinceañeras and schools and the uh, sports teams. And among the second generation uh, Latinos, a strong uh, sense of not only affiliation, solidarity, but um, consciousness about being wary of anti-black racism. And they actively teach their parents, their cousins in East LA or Lincoln Heights, their coworkers. Um, so, I feel like, you know, in this post uh, Black Lives Matter summer of 2020, there's a lot of uh, new awareness in immigrant rights organizations and Latino civil rights organizations. Oh, we, you know, should be checking ourselves. And these folks that we interviewed are already the leaders doing that. The last thing I want to add is um, we, um, a lot of our second generation interviewees had uh, gone to college. Many of them had graduated from college and have made a conscious decision to come back to the neighborhood to work as teachers, counselors, community organizers. So um, Jody Agius Vallejo has talked about this, this kind of uh, impulse among many Mexican immigrant and Mexican American families to give back to your family. And while we're seeing that magnified at kind of a community level. No, no, hello, hello, is this working? Can you hear me as well as the other one, as the other mic? No, I think that that's the better 
Um, and now we're, see, yes, this is just so much clearer and louder. Um, now we're going to go into the question and answers. We have a couple of questions from our audience. Um, one is from an audience um, member and who's watching us via YouTube. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, is the rebranding of South Central into South LA an effort to distance from gang violence and gangster rap? Who would like to take that? It was originally brought up that way. That was the context in which it uh, came up. And that's part of the reason why there's been so much struggle about the name, because South Central doesn't just mean gangs. It means culture. It means resilience. It means strength. Uh, and one of the things, just to piggyback on something that was being said before, two things that kind of prompted me to write this book along with Barrett. One is teaching at USC, and I teach a class called Los Angeles and the American Dream. And I would always, when I got to the section on South LA, say, well, who here grew up in South LA? And when I first started teaching, virtually all the hands that would go up were black. Recently, almost all the hands that go up were Latino. And what I realized was, they're the same kids. They have the same sense of pride, of resilience, of solidarity, and somebody needs to tell their story. Instead of a story based on flash and conflict and tension, uh, and that's what motivated. And the second thing I would say that got us to write this book, and it has to do with this renaming and moving away, is that we were quite conscious that as the place becomes more than majority, super majority Latino, that a story could be told that would be a sort of Latino triumphalist story. The numbers are here. This is our time. We should be the group in power. Instead of a story that's built on not succession, but sedimentation, building on what is already here, not on conquering, but on coalition, and on the commonality of interests. And so that was also answering a question you didn't quite ask, or they, but I thought it needed to be said. Thank you for that. We have another question also about the name, and I feel like we can have a whole panel discussion on the name of South LA, South Central, and I even did, some, I wrote a story about when there was a thought of naming it to Sola. Um, and we, that's a discussion we all should have together because what we call our community matters to us and we should have a say in that and be at the table. Um, and it's also important for people to understand that history so that is not erased. Um, this is a question for Manuel. Do you feel that residents of South Central today are adequately represented in City Hall? Why hasn't South Central had Latino leaderships despite being two thirds of the population? Thank you for the very easy question. Uh, so I would say, first before saying that, that the Sola thing, that was some pretty stupid shit. Uh, that didn't come from anybody. South LA came from community. I mean, there's dispute about it, but it came from community members as well as uh, others, and people too have the hashtag, I love South LA. But whoever came up with Sola and didn't realize that it meant alone in Spanish, that is some stupid shit. And uh, that's, by the way, an academic term for creating an idea. Uh, so the question again was, oh, let Well, I think that's uh, something that may change over time. 
And I think it's a delicate question because while, I mean, first you have to realize that there's a tremendous funneling of Latino representation. While Latinos are two-thirds of the population, they're probably about a third of the voters. Some of that has to do with documentation status. People don't realize, but fully 40% of Latino adults in South LA are undocumented. So that has a huge impact on their ability to participate. It's also a very young population. The African American population is older by about 10 to 15 years in terms of median age than the Latino population. That also affects, so you've got a lot of young people who are doing organizing, but there's a lot of young people who are not yet old enough to vote. And then I think it's important to realize that the advancing a Latino agenda in South LA does require more Latino political voice. But it also requires a strong black political infrastructure because that's the political infrastructure that is traditionally advocated for justice, for empowerment, and for inclusion. And so strengthening the Latino voice and strengthening the black political voice, it's something that has to be done at the same time. Thank you for that. And as we, you know, talk about the people we have and I'm, you know, helping to navigate policy and politics in our city, part of that is through COCO, that you guys have built a coalition around who you want in office, what issues are being heard, and that's such a collaborative organization. Can you talk a little bit about that, Corey, about how COCO is at, you know, talking about the issues, as you said, it's most urgent to South LA, and how that gets funneled through with both the lens of black and Latino people who are here. Thank you. So Community Coalition um, was founded to address the social and economic conditions that impact all of our livelihoods in South Los Angeles. So we, um, by design, tackle the root causes of the problem. Many of that is nested in budget allocations or misallocations or under allocations to communities most impacted by all the mores of society. Um, and so we believe that the power really rests in everyday people coming together, organizing every resident, knocking on every door, phone banking every family to ask them, what is the vision that you want for your community? and providing them with the infrastructure and the apparatus that's needed to assert that vision and to provide their voice. We are a member-led organization, which means that we don't move unless our members tell us where to, which direction, and how fast. And that is very different than an advocacy organization, and also it's very different than a direct service organization. I think that all of them are needed in the ecosystem, but what makes community organizing so unique is that it is a model that builds on top of itself. So we believe in intergenerational leadership. There is no uh, big, big, big people in the community coalition space. If you are the youngest person in the room or the oldest person in the room, the same amount of deference is shown because it's your community uh, equally and it requires everybody's voices to be heard. And I think that one of the things that we are really proud of at Community Coalition 
is our ability to elevate a very cohesive message around black brown politics to the point of really establishing and representing what solidarity actually is. It is the ability to look at issues through a lens in which we understand that there are very many forces at play to keep people contained, to keep people divided, to keep people fighting, to keep people misdirected. And so being able to cut through all of that in order to say, this is the issue, these are the decision makers, and this is the problem that we're framing, and then building power and building pressure in order to change those things has been um, an experiment that we have found has worked over the years. And I will say that the last part is really around the type of society that we live in now. I mentioned cancel culture earlier. I think that it is important to elevate that we live in a communication-centered society that messaging matters, narrative matters, and things can change literally with a tweet or a post on Facebook. I'm still on Facebook. I don't know if people, TikTok and Instagram and all that. My wife won't let me have those things. But anyway, um, things can change in a tweet. And so to the extent that we are constantly able to reach folks so that we're all on the same page around what it is that we want, that is how you create the political will for rapid changes to happen in the community and also to protect the wins that we've been able to celebrate. I just wanted to add that another part of this is frank and honest conversations around differences. So two quick things. In 2007, when I first came back to Los Angeles after about 11 years at UC Santa Cruz, although I kept working in L.A., uh, I was asked to do a black-brown thing with Karen Bass for Scope. And we went back and forth, and we told, like, the history of deindustrialization, of immigration, the crack cocaine crisis, over-policing, et cetera, et cetera. And then the Q&A happened. And the first or second question out the box was from a young black man who said, you know, I used to like Mexicans. I just don't like these new Mexicans, by which he meant Central Americans. Uh, and then another action older black gentleman had a, uh, said, you know, uh, it's that the Latinos like to work. And that's the reason why uh, there's this black unemployment, the Latinos are taking the jobs. Uh, but that stuff you could never have said in an academic setting, right? People would have said, man, that's impolitic, it's impolite, etc." That started a real and honest conversation about what people are feeling in the community. And out of that real and honest conversation grew a black-brown alliance to support the retrofitting of city buildings with pipelines for jobs for black and brown young people. So organizations like COCO do not shy away from difficult conversations. Or take Cadre, which works with black parents and understands that because the school population has changed so dramatically, if you're a black parent and you go to a PTA meeting now, it's likely to be in Spanish. And you're gonna feel alienated unless someone makes a special effort to bring you into that conversation. So we need, if we wanna build these ties, to be honest, to be frank, to be real. 
Okay, we're wrapping up shortly, but I have two rapid fire questions for everybody on this panelist, and then I'm gonna leave you guys all with the question as well. Um, what questions should we be considering and thinking about as we are imagining the future, reimagining the future of South LA? I think that the, the question that most comes to mind is are we building a South LA that would allow our young people to buy here, live here, and stay here? And it's the housing shortage that we're dealing with, the housing unaffordability crisis that we're dealing with, as well as the fact that there's just not enough livable wage jobs that don't require such a high premium on education. And then for those folks who are millennials and now Gen Z, going to school and doing all the right things, you're so saddled with so much student loan debt that if that is not in some ways mitigated, you're gonna have a very hard time living in the city. You know, I'm just gonna piggyback on that from a, a research perspective. Obviously, you know, home is a really key aspect of our book and the looming danger is can South Central, can South LA continue to be a home for the residents who are currently here, who've been here for several generations. And you know, taking it into the uh, new directions for research, as I said, we couldn't do the many things we wanted you know, we initially dreamed of. And one of them is really looking at real estate markets, looking at real estate uh, transitions. Um, you know, so I'm hoping there's a next generation of uh, researchers out there who'll take that up. What they said. That is so crazy that everybody's in unison, which lets us know that like what we see as home and community is under real threat and that we need to be as we're rethinking and reimagining and considering and pondering all the ways that South LA is changing like who is it for and how do we keep people here who are already here um, another question I have for you what are you guys hearing from people about their dreams for South Central you know one thing that um is very prominent in barbershop conversation um, is around the ability to build and incubate small businesses. And entrepreneurship, it could be a generational thing, seems to be a very um, important path that people would like to take, but just don't know enough about. And in some ways are a little bit scared to take and because there's not very many um, examples of what it looks like there's not enough direction as to how to take it on the flip side of that South Central has a very robust and well documented um, experience with businesses some legitimate some not and so I think that the ability for us to really unpack those gems as to what makes good business and the decisions that have to be done in order to do that, that feels like what people are really looking forward to. I'm just gonna say home and continuing to be able to thrive in this place, continuing to shape the place 
and continuing to launch the next generations. What I'll conclude with is that historically, South Central got looked at from the outside as a place of deficits, as a place of problems, as a place with deep economic challenges. And I don't want to minimize all of those, but the resilience, the pride of place, the amazing community organizing, which is a model for the rest of the country, the ability to go through this demographic transition and build bridges, particularly when you realize that the two communities coming into the closest proximity in America's urban areas are African Americans and Latinos. South LA is the future. South LA is a model of what could be done with good community organizing and power building and coalition building. Thank you. And my question for you all is, what are your dreams for South Central? And what are you willing to do to realize them? So I hope you take that with you as you go out into the world. Thank you so much to my panelists, Corey, Purette, Manuel. Thank you all for being here. Please patronize Mercado La Paloma. Thank you, Zocala Public Square. This has been an amazing conversation. And let's do this again soon. It's so great to gather and be in community with everyone.